Please do take your seats and if you have a Bible nearby, if you could pick that up and turn to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to be carrying on uh, a series we stopped sometime before Christmas looking at the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and Lou's going to come up and read for us from Matthew chapter 6 before Robin comes to preach for us. chapter 6 and starting at verse 19 that is page 971 in the church bibles do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal for where your treasure is there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Thank you, Lou. Um, yes, leaving your Bibles open on that same passage. Um, I want you to, at the start, picture a, a funeral um, in the great graveyard. Two men have watched the coffin lowered, and they, they're respectful. They talk to each other in, in, in undertones. Nobody can hear what they're saying. The man who was buried was a millionaire. And one of these men asks the other, how much did he leave? You've probably heard this one before. The other man says, everything. Every penny. Uh, I've traced that as far back as I could to an author and pastor in America called J.R. Miller, sometime around 1911. But it may be that it goes back further than that. Uh, I have no idea whether that ever actually happened. But the message uh, there is, uh, sorry, the message there is, is reasonably clear. And here in this passage that we're looking at tonight in Matthew 6, Jesus is really getting deeply into the heart of the same matter. He's using a resting language to get through to his listeners that the righteousness of his kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, is worked out in the details of one's personal life, very much connected to the things Nathan's just been praying about and indeed we've been singing about. So, we come to um, the next of our series on the best sermon ever. Which every preacher that's done this has to feel obliged to say that that's not a reference to this sermon. It's the sermon we're looking at in the Bible, just in case anybody should be worried. And um, we've had about a two-month break from doing this, so we're picking it up in, in this passage in Matthew uh, 6. And here we find that Jesus calls his followers to choose. They're going to choose, they've been asked to choose where they're going to store up their treasure. 
choose who is going to be their master. Is it going to be God or wealth? And then later, which will be the next sermon in this series, what's going to be their outlook on life? Is it going to be faith or is it going to be worry? So the first question we've got is to ask ourselves, based on this passage, based on this part of Jesus' sermon, is where is yours? Where is your treasure being stored? Verse 19, read it again. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin, in at least one version of the NIV, or it could be translated rust or worm, or it could be translated eating or consuming, I'm no Greek scholar, but it, that's interesting, <laughs> a set of words. Uh, where moths and rust, let's say, destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. So first I think it's necessary to just check and ask ourselves what Jesus is not saying. He's not, he's clearly not condemning wealth, or heaven forbid, clothes. Uh, he's not pre- prohibiting things at all, but the love of things. So we could compare that with Paul's teaching in 1 Timothy, where we read that it's not money, but the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil. Now, uh, I'm going to quote Dr. Carson, Don Carson. Uh, I made uh, a few times tonight, and I may just reduce it to Carson. Don't get him confused with the butler in Downton. This This is Dr. Don Carson, one of the best New Testament scholars of our age, in my opinion at least, and others as well, I know. So one thing he said was that in verses 19 and 20 here, they're less concerned with financial wealth and giving it away than with a person's scale of values, whereby he establishes what is his or her ultimate treasure. And even in the last verse in this short passage, uh, it's not so much focused on money as on servitude and commitment. Who, who do you serve? Uh, so that's what Jesus is not saying. What, what is he saying? Um, he talks of our storing up things on earth, uh, things precious to us, storing them up on earth, and that we shouldn't do it. And the whole thing seems to form around this word treasure, and what our understanding of it is your treasure consists of the things that you treasure, the things that really matter to you, the things that are precious to you. Uh, If that describes things of this earth, and we, his followers, are told not to store them up, then it comes down to a matter of obedience. Now, um, actual material treasure material things, as Jesus points out so clearly, however that word is translated, whether it's vermin or rust or whatever, uh, there's built-in degradation. Uh, So what we store on earth can be eaten by pests, it can be and is subject to oxidation, rusting, corrosion. It can be stolen. The irony of that last one, of course, is that Uh, it's all the more likely to be stolen, the more valuable it is. Hence, gated communities where each house has multiple burglar alarms will be top of the list for any serious burglar. Why would you bother with anywhere else? Uh, But a key point of all this, surely, isn't it, is it's 
impermanence, its transient nature, its temporary nature. And like our lives, which are described in the Bible as a passing vapor, these things can just go. Uh, like the millionaire's fortune, they ca can't be taken with us, and we can't even rely on them being always there down here on earth. To quote Carson again, if a man wants, really needs to listen to this carefully, if a man wants above all else to make a lot of money, buy an extravagant house, ski in the Alps, sail in the Med, head his own company, buy out his competitors, build a reputation, achieve the next promotion, seek public office, he'll be devoured by these goals and the values of the kingdom will get squeezed out. I realize I did emphasize the word if a man wants above all else to do that. In other words, none of these things are intrinsically bad, but none of them is of intrinsic value either. So, so not one of them is eternal. None of them could be classed as storing up anything in heaven. So moving on to verse 20, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Now so often the teaching of the Bible and Jesus' teaching is don't do this, do that. It would be not too helpful often if it just stayed with the don't do this. And here we go. But what you should do is store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now that word heart used here uh, we all really know what it means. It's not referring to the, the vital blood-pumping organ. Uh, but, to quote the ESV Study Bible, uh, the center of one's being involving one's emotions, reason, and will. The center of one's being involving one's emotions, <coughs> reason, and will. So it's, it is quite hard to define, even though we use the word just about every day. In this way, we're happy to talk about somebody being wholehearted, nothing to do with an organ. His heart's not in it. I haven't got the heart to tell her. Somebody's been cut to the heart. You might hear somebody say, at, at heart, he's still a Yorkshireman. Or even, that's the heart of the matter, meaning the real center of it. So we're very happy and content and comfortable with that use of the word heart. Where your treasure is, that your heart will be also. So what we treasure is closest to our innermost selves, which includes our emotions and our reason and our will. Now the passage doesn't spell out what this treasure in heaven is, only that it doesn't degrade. But what does it look like? What does storing it in heaven actually mean? Well, I think the clue lies in the phrase where your treasure is there, your heart will be also, which of course is reversible. Where, um, where your heart is, that's where your treasure is. So what sort of things? I think one clue is, lies in that phrase, and one clue is that you, when you go to sleep at night, what's the last thing you think about when you wake in the morning? What's the first thing you think about? That, that is likely to give you some clue as to where your heart is. So your thoughts 
if your thoughts and affections and your worship of God, let's say, are limited to an hour or two in church on a Sunday morning, limited to that, uh, then that strongly suggests that your treasure is stored somewhere else. So what? Pursuing God? Consciously feeding on him through his words, serving him, including preaching the gospel or spreading the gospel, obeying him, fellowshipping, praying with his people. All of these things do, in fact, resemble storing treasure in heaven. So, moving on to the next part. Next question, light, where is yours? Verse 22, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now, um, the idea of the eye being a lamp is problematic to some of us. Um, anybody that's taught, certainly in a primary school, and has had to deal with science, will be familiar with this sort of thing. Uh, trying to teach children light ray diagrams and trying to tell them what is a light source and what is a light receptor, receiving light, uh, would always end up with some sort of picture like this. And left to themselves, I think about nine out of ten children, probably a higher proportion than that, would go and do that. And they get my total disapproval. Uh, because, of course, the you could walk into a dark room and open your eyes and it stays a dark room. It's not a, your eyes and not a source of light. Uh, once you've taught it and rammed it into them, that one out of ten might, if you've done well, rise to two out of ten who do get it right and get approval. So that's, that's the science of the matter. That's how light works. So you can see there's a bit of a problem in talking about the fact that the eye it can be seen as a lamp. Uh, there's no clear consensus that I could find in any commentaries as to how these two verses fit into the wider passage. That's not to say nobody has any idea, but there's no consensus. It's not like everybody says it's really obvious how that fits in between the two uh, portions either side in Jesus' teaching. Um, according to the ESV Study Bible, the eye in Jewish literature was, and probably still is, similar to the heart, the eye and the heart. I wouldn't have necessarily made that link. So, they like, so it's likened to, a, the eye is likened to a lamp that reveals the quality of the person's inner life. So a healthy eye, which would uh, equate to clear vision, suggests loyal devotion to God, while a bad eye, impaired vision, implies moral corruption. And along the way, the, uh, the whole body, the expression whole body, is also a Jewish expression, meaning you yourself. So it's easy to see, then, that the eye and the heart are linked. Now, some argue that the eye has a function in directing you to, towards what's good. Uh, in other words, directing you to the whole idea of storing a treasure in heaven, which is the best thing. Uh, as in, you can see where you go. Uh, but there is an alternative, uh, simpler interpretation. Don Carson again says the whole body, person, is like a room in a house. The purpose of the eye is to illuminate this room. 
a bit like drawing curtains. Now, the window isn't it itself, thinking of my bit of primary teaching on the, on the screen, that the, the window itself isn't strictly a source of light, but it behaves exactly like one in a dark room. You might go towards the window to read something more clearly. Uh, it just so happens that Jesus uses the figure of a lamp, not a window. That's his argument. So the eye, especially the good eye, can also be linked to singleness of purpose, or if you like, undivided loyalty, whereby we are focused on God and on the values of his kingdom. And of course, the Sermon on the Mount, which is what we're looking at over this whole series, and what part, part of it, what Jesus is talking about here is all about values of his kingdom, which will, will not be the same as the values of the kingdom we live in on earth, of the country we live in, of the culture we live in. But what we get now is this lovely picture of a person full of light, uh, especially seen in terms of understanding God's revealed truth. Um, for example, in the hymn we're going to have after this, there's the line, there's the verse, I will not boast in wealth or might or human wisdom's fleeting light, but I will boast in knowing Christ at the cross. Knowing Christ. So a person full of light is going to have that understanding of what Christ and the cross actually mean and mean to them. The unspeakably wonderful thing that it is. Uh, but not only understanding God's revealed truth, but living a pure life, a life without shame or embarrassment. Not a perfect life, but blameless in the way the New Testament uses that word. Uh, and all can be easily linked or equated to storing treasure in heaven. Uh, just one last thing on light. Uh, being full of light would, being full of light would seem to suggest overflow. <coughs> it's hard to fill something without it overflowing and, and therefore giving off light. And that would fit in perfectly with, I think, the last time we looked and Steve uh, Berry was preaching when we looked at us being the light of the world. Uh, so that ties in with that. Uh, as for the opposite in this uh, section, uh, verses 22 and 23, uh, full of darkness, we're told. Full of darkness seems like the exact opposite picture. So we've got somebody devoid of revelation or understanding uh, and purity. And the worst of all, is when the person deceives themselves by thinking their eyes are good, leading to a false sense or false appearance of following God's way whilst not doing so. And therefore, that's damaging and even disastrous. Uh, how great indeed is that darkness? So the third section, um, verse just 24 on its own, no one, says Jesus, can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So we're going to hear a general comment on the principle, but also the impossibility of serving two masters. In other words, we see how it's always going to go one way or the other. Now, interestingly, absolutely no Greek scholar, but I understand that the word used for serve, something like duleo, um, indicates work, the work of a slave. 
not an employee in the more modern sense. Uh, but even so, today, working for two masters, which I don't think I've ever done, some people here have, I believe, uh, might be problematic in terms of prioritising. I've been given two contrary instructions, who do I, who do I um, obey? Uh, which instruction do I follow? And the idea of mentioning the slave is that when this was written, the readers would understand it in a much stronger sense that, than we do by wheeling it into our ordinary employee working life. And the competing masters that Jesus is think, thinking about are stated. It's God and money. God and money. Really? What, what sort of comparison is that? Why are we even bothering to talk about this? On the one hand, God. On the other hand, money. You've got to be joking. This can't be... a, a they can't be being spoken of as equivalents, something so basic. Well, we're talking about it because he did. Jesus has put this in his sermon, and therefore it is a problem. He's, he's not wasting words. He's not warning of a sub, uh, us of something that we're not going to suffer from, or not many of us will suffer from. It's pretty universal in the fallen human race. And this contrast between love and hate, to quote Carson again, is a common Semitic Jewish idiom, love and hate, and it's therefore not legitimate to take it absolutely literally. So I suppose an illustration for us is that you might say you've got a love-hate relationship with your kettle or, <laughs> or your lawnmower, to quote two things that will be true for me. Um, yeah. Hate is, is like grossly overdone, overstated, but it's, it's meant to form a contrast, isn't it? To hate one thing and love another is a, is a great way of pointing out that one of them is strongly preferred over the other. And that's, that's what we're looking at here. Um, in terms of your two masters, that's the way it's going to work out. Now, it's true that during crises, our allegiances to one master or the other, our allegiances tend to get sorted out. Only, only one can come out on top. Now, money, here often translated mammon, meaning money or possessions, although the original word meant something, just something in which one puts one's confidence. Uh, and because possessions and wealth are what people regularly put their confidence in, it came to refer to just those things. Uh, I just want to finish by uh, this little bit before we just conclude uh, with um, two examples showing which master is being served and or obeyed. Um, one's in theory and the other's in actual in practice. So in theory, imagine you, you're job seeking and two jobs become available to you. Do you choose the one with the bigger salary or the one that provides better opportunity to serve the Lord? That's something that could happen to anybody who's still working uh, or, or job-seeking. Uh, and if you're a Christian, that's a very, very valid question. And the second example is a, a real-life one, although 300 years old. It involves the a Bible commentator, commentary writer, Matthew Henry. Many of us have one of those weighing down our bookshelves. And he was robbed one day. And he returned home and wrote this in his diary. I just imagine you in that situation, because we can still be robbed. He said, Lord, I thank you 
that I've never been robbed before. That although they took my money, they spared my life. That although they took everything, it wasn't much. That it was I who was robbed, not I who robbed. A fantastic, wonderful example of your master not being your money. Just want to finish with a comment and then a conclusion. Um, there's an objection that people have about this sort of teaching, uh, which is along the lines of, or have you heard the expression, being so heavenly-minded as to be of no earthly good? Um, so all this treasure in heaven talk, most, most talk about heaven and the hope of heaven and almost investing in heaven, um, surely it's encouraging people to be so heavenly-minded they're not going to do anything worthwhile on earth. Well, um, it was only a matter of time before I quoted C.S. Lewis, so here we go. In his series of wartime broadcasts, the Second World War, which later became the book Mere Christianity, uh, in a chapter called Hope, obviously going to have a lot to do with heaven, he says this, a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought the most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they've become so ineffective in this one. And then he has this famous little thing, aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Uh, aim at earth and you'll get neither. Aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. So let's conclude by asking, what are we to do? How, how, sh how should we then live? To quote Schaefer. Um, well, we can read, we can meditate on, we can try to absorb Jesus' teachings here uh, and allow them to continually realign our lives and our priorities. Uh, and in terms of questioning ourselves, where is your treasure? Last time I'm going to quote Don Carson, a person who honestly examines himself can pretty well discover what his real treasures are simply by studying his deepest desires. This is where my comment about last sleeping thought and first waking thought comes in. And why is Jesus saying all, all of this anyway? Is it to spoil our fun? Because we, we like laying for ourselves or storing treasure on earth. We, 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 that's what we want to do. That's what we tend to do. Um, is he just some sort of cosmic spoil sport? No, we need to remind ourselves that he knows us better than we know ourselves. And he wants the best for us. Uh, we, we do too. Uh, you know, I want the best for me, you want the best for you, I'm quite sure. But we're fallen creatures and we literally don't know what's good for us. Whereas, he, our creator, and our loving saviour, knows what's best for us. And if we ever doubt that he wants the best for us, we only need to meditate on what we're going to be doing when we gather around the communion table and even when we sing our next song, meditate 
on the cross. So, to finish, our billionaire uh, that we started with, well, he's gone up from a millionaire to a billionaire, I think, um, entered eternity without a single penny of his wealth that he'd accumulated. And even in, this, in, even in this life, it was never really secure. So let's us, let's hang on to and respond to that eternally true statement of Jesus, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also.